You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. A six-year study was completed with 580 undergraduate students about their relationship with silence. And it revealed two things. The first is that they are afraid of silence. And the second is that their fear of silence is a learned behavior. And in the study, one student said, when there's no noise in my room, it scares me. And several of the students explained that they felt like they could not focus or function in silence. One even said they were in the library studying, but they couldn't stay because it was too quiet. So they had to go back to the room, get their iPod, and then return to the library in order to focus. Now this study concluded in 2012, and there's really no indication that in the last 11 years anything has changed. The study observed that this was not just the fault of social media, which is what we might conclude, but it was actually a learned behavior passed down from their parents and their grandparents. Televisions and radios and phones and computers had been a constant part of these students' lives, really from their, from their, for their entire lives, from a very young age. And so they had grown this fear of silence. And some of this was just environmental because when you remove something like noise that has been a constant stimuli, then it's normal in that then to feel uncomfortable. That's a pretty normal reaction. But I'd also argue that I think it points to something even deeper in our collective fear of silence. When we're silent, then our true self begins to emerge. And we're not always very comfortable with our true selves. When we get alone and we get quiet, we fear what might be revealed. We fear what we might think to ourselves. We fear what might be exposed. We fear what um, we might think in those moments when nothing else is coming into our minds. And if our fear of silence is a learned behavior, as that study showed, then it's also something we can unlearn. And we should want to because silence is a gift. And in our passage today, Jesus makes silence and solitude a priority. And here's the deal. If Jesus needed silence and solitude, then so do we. We should not think that we don't. We should not assume that we don't need something that Jesus needed. And here's really the message of the sermon today, is that even though silence is scary, with Jesus, there's a sweetness in the silence. We can admit silence is scary, but also we want to know that with Jesus, there is a sweetness in the silence. We're in a series called Tired of Being Tired. We subtitled that Embracing the Rhythms of Jesus in an Age of Distraction. We are in a distracted and tired and lonely world. And Americans report actually being more tired and more lonely than they've ever been. All the noise of our world distracts us. But we do not believe that that's what Jesus intended for us. That's not how Jesus wants us to live. He has something better available for us. And so our aim throughout this series has been to learn the way of Jesus. Jesus was the epitome of peace. He was always at work, but never in a hurry. And he was never distracted, but he was always present with the people around him. And we want to be those sort of people as well. And so today we're going to focus on the discipline, the rhythm of silence and solitude. That's what we're calling it, silence and solitude. That's what we want to embrace together. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 7. 
And we're actually going all the way to verse 47. And so that's a long section of scripture, of course. Um, but we're not going to spend time on every single verse. But there are a few very specific verses that often get overlooked when people read this story and this narrative of Jesus. And they reveal something important about the rhythms of Jesus. Because even though he had this booming ministry, even though he was sought after by the crowds and they were clamoring for his attention, he prioritized silence and solitude. And so I'll say it again. If Jesus needed silence and solitude, then so do we. Let me pray for us before we jump into the text. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people. And so we ask for your help right now. Would you help us to behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hopefully if you have found Mark chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. Uh, again, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And what we read there is that Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. So by, by this time in Jesus's life, he had already appointed 12 apostles. He had established a public ministry. And Jesus here is sending out his closest disciples to do the same things that they had been watching Jesus do. And in verses 12 through 13, if we skip down a little, as he sends them out, it says that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Again, it's doing the same things Jesus did. He did that. He proclaimed that people should repent. And they casted out demons and anointed many with oil, and healed those who were sick. And so Jesus is doing the same things, or sorry, the disciples are sent out to do the same things that Jesus did. And in many ways, their ministry has now become an extension of Jesus's ministry. And others began to take notice. When this starts happening, when when disciples are going out and proclaiming the gospel and of the kingdom, and they're healing, and they're casting out demons, right? People take notice. And so news continues to spread that Jesus and his disciples were having this sort of impact. So then in, in verse 14, what we see is that King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known, it says in verse 14. And people are then are trying to make sense of who Jesus is and what's happening. And so it says that um, some suggested that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead in verse 14. That's why these miraculous powers are at work. Others in verse 15 are saying that it's Elijah. And, and others still are saying that he's a prophet like the one of old. So they're trying to figure out what's going on. But Herod in verse 16 says that when he heard of it, he said, It's John whom I'm beheaded. He's been raised. And so then we get this long story about the events that led to Herod executing John. But really, they're, just, they're all trying to make sense of what's happening. What's this movement that's going on? Jesus and his disciples are having this impact, and people want to know what's going on. And so that's what we should see, that Jesus and his disciples are having this impact. The crowds are taking notice. So in verses 30 through 32, when we pick that up here in the story of Jesus and his disciples, what we see is that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So these three verses, 30, 31, and 32, that's what I really want to focus on right now. And in particular, they are going to be the focus of point one for the sermon. And so um, throughout the sermon, I have three observations about Jesus's relationship with the crowds that will then serve as our three points. The first is that Jesus did not need the crowds. 
The second is that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. And the third is that Jesus sought silence from the crowds. So those are three points. First, Jesus did not need the crowds. In many ways, Jesus's ministry got, had gotten off to this great start. I mean, it started so well, right? Like he had established his authority. He had been training and developing the first leaders of this movement. He had commissioned them for ministry. They went out to do the same things that Jesus did. And they were so successful in that region. They had gotten the attention of the king. So they come back to Jesus in verse 30 and tell him all that had happened. Their ministry had been so successful and had drawn so many people to them. They couldn't even eat a meal in peace. Where it says in verse 31, they had no leisure even to eat. In Jesus's response, we should take notice. His response is not to crave the attention, but actually to get away from the noise, get into the silence. And here's what Jesus knew. The crowds were not what his soul needed. Silence is what his soul needed. Silence is what the souls of his disciples needed. The reality is that none of us have the charisma to draw a crowd like Jesus did. And if you think that you do, then you'll probably be sadly mistaken at some point. We just don't, we don't have that ability. Jesus had a unique power and authority. But that doesn't mean that we are immune to the attraction of approval. We're still drawn to that. We're drawn to what other people have, de have deemed worthy of our attention. We can experience FOMO, the fear of missing out. But by leading the disciples away from the crowd, Jesus is doing two different things. First, he is resisting the urge to be defined by his own popularity. Humans, we have an addiction to approval. And if we feed that addiction, it will consume us. But Jesus didn't need the crowd to define him. And the second thing he's doing is he's resisting the urge to be caught up in all the noise. We experience this. I mean, there's something exciting about being part of the crowd. We like the, the sort of um, energy that's there. We want to be where the action is. We want to be part of what's happening in the world. But our addiction to approval and our addiction to action... They can distract us from being present with God and present with others. Andrew Sullivan is considered by some to be one of the most influential political writers of his generation. He started a political blog in the year 2000, and he was a professional blogger before most people even knew what a blog was. And in a recent New York Magazine article titled, I Used to Be a Human Being, he described the endless stream of news and gossip and images that had rendered us manic information addicts. And he says, it broke me. It might break you too. Sullivan was an early adopter in what might be called living in the web. He was constantly scouring the internet. He was looking for something noteworthy that he could spread to his growing audience. I mean, he had this massive audience who wanted him to communicate with them. And the pace of being a professional blogger became overwhelming to him. And this was before the advent of smartphones and social media. But then he eventually realized he was no longer alone because smartphones and social media had given everyone the opportunity to live at the digital pace of a professional blogger. And in his own assessment of the situation, he wrote this, this new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds 
even as they shape shift under the pressure, the threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget we have any. Sullivan retired from this blogging in 2015. He shut down his blog site. He needed to quit the cycle of noise or it was going to kill him. Literally, it might have killed him as he had four bronchial infections in the final 12 months of his blogging that every time became progressively more difficult for him to overcome. And Sullivan found out the hard way what Jesus wanted his disciples to know all along. The way of Jesus requires us to resist the noise, the crowds, and the current of culture because it will consume us and we'll get caught up in a current that we may not be able to recover recover from and we'll be awash at sea. Our bodies will suffer under the weight of it. Our souls will be lost. And throughout this series, we've been trying to advocate that if you are tired of being tired, then we believe that the way of Jesus is what you need. That is the answer. Together, we want to embrace the rhythms of Jesus in our age of distraction. And according to Justin Whitmell early in his book, The Common Rule, I have a copy here. It's a really helpful book about these sorts of things. There are habits of embrace and habits of resistance. Habits of embrace are those that intentionally move us toward God. Habits of resistance are those that intentionally limit the things that distract us from God. And silence and solitude is a habit of resistance. And really throughout this series, um, kind of beneath the surface, you may not have realized this, but we've been intentionally alternating between habits of embrace and those of resistance. So rehearsing our identity, prayer, and Bible reading, these are habits of embrace. They move us toward God. They remind us what is good and right and beautiful in the world. And on the other hand, Sabbath and fasting and silence and solitude that we're talking about today, silence and solitude, these are habits of resistance. They help us remember our limits, seeing our need for God more clearly. And here's what I have noticed in crafting this series. As American Christians, we are good at talking about the habits of embrace. We like to talk about Bible reading and identity and prayer, but we're not good at habits of resistance. Fasting and Sabbath and silence and solitude, they're not common practices among American evangelicals. And in this way, we are far more influenced by our American culture of noise and distraction than we would like to admit. We crave the noise. We exhaust ourselves with work. And if we are not careful, we will fail to see that all of this is distracting us from God and killing our souls. Now, all of these habits together, embrace and resistance, they reinforce one another. Our identity is actually uh, more clear when we are not letting our work define it for us as we practice Sabbath. Our Bible reading is more fruitful if we learn to quiet our souls from all the distractions through silence and solitude. See, Jesus did not need the crowds. He didn't need the noise. And he was intentional about removing himself from them because he knew what was good for his soul. So Jesus did not need the crowds, but, and here's point two, Jesus had compassion on the crowds. So Jesus and his disciples, they get in this boat, they head to a desolate place in verse 32. And then in verse 33, we read that many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns. They get there ahead of them. And so the disciples and Jesus, they get met by this crowd that had already gathered. 
And it says that Jesus and his disciples, they're right, they're trying to get alone, but the crowds follow him. So they they met them at their destination. By the time they get off the boat, there are crowds that already gathered. And in verse 34, it tells us how Jesus then responds to the crowd. It says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus may not have needed the crowds, but he did not despise them. When they landed and saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And here we arrive at the tension that we feel in life between silence and solitude and what it means to live in relationship with others. After today, we're going to hit pause on this series so that we can focus on Advent together over the next four weeks. But in January, we're going to pick up this series again, and we're going to focus then on Jesus's relational rhythms and his public rhythms. We, we will spend a lot of time with them then in January and February. But right now, what I want to focus on is the way that our personal rhythms and our relational rhythms relate to one another, because we see that in our passage. The need for rest is not an excuse for selfishness and laziness. In fact, if we do it right, it actually will strengthen us to be servants of others. And so what happens when people interrupt our need for rest? What happens when we're trying to get silence and solitude and people get in the way? Well, the example of Jesus would say that we should not see people as the enemy. Jesus is not annoyed by them. He's compassionate toward them. So if we want to live in the way of Jesus, we will experience this tension. What does it mean to be hospitable, welcoming, and missional with our lives while also practicing Sabbath, silence, and slowing down? Consider, for example, a mother who wants to create a home where her kids and their friends, they want to come and hang out. And the reality is this takes work to cultivate an environment where people feel welcomed and people feel wanted. And these these people coming into our homes, they will inevitably require extra work. They will create additional noise. And there will be times when she is hoping for some family time and a quiet evening where she wants some of that silence and solitude we're talking about. But the neighborhood kids will knock on the door. Or their daughter will come home from soccer practice with another friend in the car. Hospitality and welcome and mission, they are all about people. And the reality is that people are messy. They don't always work on your clock. They're they're rarely asking about the inner workings of your timeline. Investing in relationships with neighbors, welcoming a coworker into your life, cultivating a life of hospitality and mission, it's going to be disordered at times because of the reality of people. So Jesus did not despise the crowds for interrupting his silence and solitude. He responds in compassion. He teaches them about God's kingdom. And what we read is that he fed them. In Mark 3, we get some insight into how Jesus was training his disciples in this way of living. In particular, in Mark 3, verse 13, we see that Jesus went up onto a mountain and he calls to him those whom he desired. So he calls his disciples to himself. And then while he's there, he appoints 12 to be his apostles. These are supposed to be the closest of his disciples. These are the ones that Jesus would spend the most time training in his way of life. They're the same ones that we see he sends out in Mark 6 where where we were reading earlier. And these are the ones that are going to lead the movement after Jesus died. And in Mark chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, it says that he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so here we see there are two reasons that Jesus appointed the 12. The first is that they might be with him. 
And the second is that he might send them out. As a disciple of Jesus, we also have this same constant rhythm of being with Jesus and being sent by Jesus. Silence and solitude is a way of being more present with Jesus. Hospitality, welcome, and mission are ways that we're sent by Jesus to do the very things that he did. And these two rhythms, they're not in conflict with one another. They're actually in support of one another. And we don't need to choose between them. Like sometimes we think we do. And in fact, if we try to choose one, we'll actually lose them both. You cannot be with Jesus over and over without being sent by him. It just doesn't work. Because you cannot truly be with Jesus and then not get the impulse to love others and have compassion on them just like he did. You also cannot be sent by Jesus if you're not with him first. Again, this just doesn't work. Because you cannot bring the light of Christ if you're not experiencing it yourself. You might be able to try it for a while, but you'll eventually burn out. So rather than see these two things in tension with one another, rather than seeing them as being in conflict with one another, see them as complementary friends. We need them both. If you want to live with compassion and hospitality, then you have to live with silence and solitude. You need to slow down sometimes. If you want to be on mission, then you need the peace that comes from rest. But one of the problems that we have is that uh, we often decide to begin practicing these rhythms of resistance, Sabbath, fasting, silence, and solitude, and then they get interrupted because that's just the reality of the messiness of life. What happens with the compassion for people? People will interrupt that. And when that happens, then what we can often do is beat ourselves up for not doing it well enough. And then eventually what we can do is just end up giving them up altogether. That's not what Jesus wants. And Jesus didn't give up on his need for silence and solitude in our passage. And so if we go back to Mark chapter 6, what we see in verses 35 through 44 is that Jesus feeds the crowds and cares for their needs. Here, he's, right, he's having compassion on them. And we reach then this third point. Jesus needed silence from the crowds, right? He still needed it. Okay, so in verse 45, what we see is that immediately he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. So Jesus, he got his disciples into a boat, headed to Bethsaida. He stays behind with the crowds. He lets his disciples right, get alone first, and then he dismisses the crowds. And it says that after he took leave of them, in verse 46, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Jesus still wanted his time for prayer. He wanted some time for his soul to be quiet. And so he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat's gone, right? It's out on the, it's out on the sea, and Jesus is alone on land. So we get this kind of, lay, kind of um, assessment of the situation, a little bit of a summary. And the following story will again show Jesus' divinity in this miracle of walking on water. But sandwiched between these two miracles, first the feeding of the 5,000, and then also in the walking on water, we might miss something about the way of Jesus if we don't look closely. See, he still felt like silence and solitude was a priority. And I'll say it again. If Jesus needed silence and solitude, then so do we. So Jesus gets some time alone to pray. And here's what we see then in the life of Jesus and that we want to emulate. We need to intentionally pursue silence and solitude, just like he does with his disciples in verses 30 through 32. And if that gets interrupted by the needs of others, then we should respond with compassion and love, just like Jesus does in verses 33 through 44. But when the crowds then have dispersed, when the guests have left our homes, 
then we should still pursue that silence and solitude. But what I often find is that when the work of ministry has ended, what I'm tempted to do when I feel tired and exhausted is rather than go and get real silence and solitude, rather than get real quiet for my soul, we are tempted to feed ourselves with entertainment, food, and social media. For most of us, the reason we don't get silence and solitude is not because we are so busy on mission. It's because we've allowed ourselves to be consumed with our addiction to distraction. And here's the deal. Silence and solitude doesn't need to be overly complicated. It doesn't mean that you will always need extended time alone. It doesn't mean you can always get extended time alone. I mean, it's nice if you can, right? But you're not always going to get out to the wilderness. But for most of us, we will get these little short pockets of time if we're willing to create them. My most consistent time alone is in the mornings. And there's two principles that have really helped me with this. The first is kneeling prayer. And so when my alarm goes off in the morning, most days, the first thing I do is get on my knees beside my bed and I pray. And often it is just a short, repeated prayer. Sometimes I add more, but usually it's just this short, repeated prayer that focuses my day on the most important things. And the second thing that has helped me is really just a phrase that I learned from the common rule book that I I referenced earlier. And it's just this phrase, three words, Bible before phone. It just helps me to remind myself of what I want uh, first and what I want as a priority because uh, the story of chaos and distraction, it wants to have its say. But before it gets to have its say, I want God's word and the story of his redemption to be the first thing that shapes my mind. Now let's acknowledge mornings are not the best time for everyone, right? Might not be for you and that's okay. However, you should know what the best time is for you. Given your temperament, your responsibilities, you know, different aspects of your life. Ask yourself, when can you get consistent time for silence and solitude? Or in the language of Mark 3, how can you get time to be with Jesus before you are sent by him throughout your day? Mine's in the morning. And so I ask, when is yours? When can you consistently get some time for silence and solitude? Even if you can only get 15 minutes a day, just make the most of every minute that you can get. And there are some other ways to help us reduce the distraction and to quiet our soul. Maybe you do some things on your phone. You turn off some notifications. You help reduce your screen time. When you're driving, you turn off your radio. When you go out for a walk or a run, maybe leave your headphones behind. Rather than filling your ears with noise, just allow yourself to think and breathe. If you're sitting in a waiting room, don't take out your phone. Just give yourself time to think. These are all little ways you can embrace the silence. But here's what I've observed. For most of us, we're afraid of silence. Like the university students that I referenced in the study earlier, uh, when we remove all the noise, we are left with only ourselves, and that scares us because we're not sure if we like our true selves. When we are in the stream of noise going on around us, we can be who we think others want us to be. We can fill our minds with how others think that we should live and we can distract ourselves from our true selves, our true thoughts, our true emotions. But when we remove the noise and the facade falls away, then we are most present to our own soul. That can be scary. But with Jesus, there is a sweetness in the silence. Ultimately, if you are following Jesus, if you're one of his, then we are never alone. Even in the silence We're never alone because not only are we more present to our own soul, we're more present with God. And here's something that you need to hear right now. You may not like your true self when you are quiet. 
but God loves your true self. Jesus died for your true self. And God isn't fooled by the person you are in the midst of the noise. He knows who you really are in the quiet, and he has welcomed you. He's invited you to join him at his table. If we want to be hospitable people who welcome others to our table in the messiness of mission, then we need to know that God is the hospitable one who welcomes us to his table in the quiet of silence and solitude. I was reminded of this when I was on an extended prayer retreat. And as I approached the final night of the prayer retreat, I, I actually started to become very agitated. I was frustrated and I became angry because throughout my prayer retreat, nothing significant had happened. I went away to get silence and solitude. And while I was there, I wanted an epiphany. I wanted breakthrough. And that had not happened. Now, it wasn't a bad time. It wasn't negative. I had some sweet times of prayer and meditation, but it wasn't dynamic. It, nothing dramatic had happened. And so I was frustrated with God. I was disappointed with myself for not achieving more on this prayer retreat. And as I was lying on my back, I could feel my heart beating and I could feel the weight on my chest of needing to produce something from this prayer retreat. And into the silence, I was reminded that God didn't need me to accomplish anything. The point of this prayer retreat was just to be quiet, to be still, to be present with the Lord. And that had happened. God was happy to be with the unaccomplished Jeremy. I didn't need to do anything. God loved the unproductive Jeremy just as much as the productive one. The goal of silence and solitude is to be more present. Present with ourselves, to be more present with God, the one who loves us unconditionally. And then as a result, as we walk through this world, to be more present with those around us. Your silence and solitude doesn't need to be productive. Just be with Jesus. We can admit silence is scary, but what we want to learn is that with Jesus, there is a sweetness in the silence. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.